Well, today we're going to continue our series in the book of Revelation. I want to talk to you about when the church marries the world. We're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. And so I want to encourage you, if you have your Bible there while you're enjoying your coffee this morning, to turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to read this letter to the church at Pergamum. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. Because you have there some who hold the teachings of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, Repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. This is the word of God. You know, for many people today in the church, the term worldliness has a kind of a quaint, old-fashioned ring to it. Uh, They associate it with prohibitions against things like uh, going to the movies or dancing or playing cards. And and that's the case because today's seeker-sensitive church doesn't preach much about worldliness. To do so might make unbelievers uncomfortable, not to mention many believers, and that would be poor marketing strategy. But unlike much of the contemporary church, the Bible doesn't hesitate to condemn worldliness for the sin that it is. Uh, You say, well, what is worldliness? Well, worldliness is to think and act like the lost world. It's to hold the world's values. It's to pursue the world's desires. It's a preoccupation with the material, the temporary, over the eternal. It's it's a focus on the desires of the flesh rather than on God's desires. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. He says, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The world is constantly trying to pressure us into its mold, into its likeness. And that's why we must renew our minds so that we can be, so we can think the thoughts of God and so that we can live in a way that pleases God. Worldliness is a way of, of thinking and acting that is hostile to God. James chapter 4 and verse 4 says, friendship with the world 
is hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And of course, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15 makes it unmistakably clear. He says there, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away. It's, it's temporal. And it's all, and also it's lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. And the church at Pergamon had failed to heed those biblical warnings against worldliness. And consequently, it had drifted into compromise and was in danger of being intertwined with the world. And Christ called the church at Pergamum to separate itself from the world or face his judgment. Now, in the same way, God calls us to separate ourselves from the world or we will face his judgment. Just a little bit of background here. Uh, The city at Pergamum was located about 100 miles north of Ephesus, with Smyrna uh, being about midway between. Pergamum was not a port city like Ephesus or Smyrna. It was located about 15 miles inland, and neither was it uh, located on one of the major trade routes. Yet, as its ancient capital, Pergamum was considered Asia's greatest city. And much of Pergamum was was, was built on a, a large uh, conical hill, and it was uh, it was located there on the what they call the Acropolis, the or the High City. And you can see the remains in this photo on the, on the screen here of the numerous temples and the massive amphitheater. Uh, and what really set uh, Pergamum apart from the other cities of Asia Minor uh, was its enormous library. It had over 200,000 hand-copied pieces, uh, volumes, and it was second only in the world to that of Alexandria in Egypt. Its vast library made it an important cultural and learning center. Pergamum was also famous for its temples uh, to the four main deities of the Greco-Roman world. Uh, There was... um, uh, Athena, Asclepius, um, uh, Dionysius, and Zeus. But overshadowing all of those deities was the worship of the emperor. Pergamum had built three different temples to various Roman emperors. And the Christians that lived there were under constant pressure to conform to the society and, and to be a part of the worship of these gods and of the emperor. But as he does today, Christ called his church to separate itself from the world. And in this passage, Christ gives us five reasons why we should separate ourselves from the world. And the first is this. Christ exposes and judges a worldly church. 
the last part of verse 12, we read, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. The one holding the sharp two-edged sword is, of course, the risen, glorified Christ. He's the author of this letter, which he dictates through the Apostle John. And as he as he did in the letters to Ephesus and Smyrna, Christ identifies himself uh, from one of the verses or the, one of the areas or descriptive phrases from John's vision in chapter 1 and verses 12 through 17. And here he uses verse 16 uh, to refer to the sharp two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth. And, of course, that is the word of God. We see that in, in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. He says, The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. See, his sword has two sharp edges, showing that the word of God is equally effective in exposing and judging the deepest thoughts and motives of the human heart. The description of Christ here with his uh, sharp two-edged sword is primarily pictures him as judge and executioner. In describing his appearance at the second coming, John says in, in chapter 19 and verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. You understand this is not a, a positive, promising introduction. It's a threatening one. This is the first negative introduction to, of Christ in the seven letters because the church at Pergamum was facing imminent judgment. A disaster loomed on the horizon for this worldly church. And, you, and that reminds us that it is but a short step from compromising with the world to forsaking God altogether and falling under his wrath. The church at, at uh, Pergamum is symbolic of all the churches throughout history that have married the world, that have compromised and come into that kind of relationship with the world. You know, one of the clearest examples of that comes from the 4th century. In A.D. 313, the emperor Constantine uh, issued an edict called the, the Edict of Milan. It granted religious freedom to all the Christians, and it ended two and a half centuries of vicious persecution. He adopted Christianity, and he made it the favored religion in the empire. And this began the process by which Christianity merged with the Roman state. See, heathen priests became Christian priests. Heathen temples became Christian temples. Heathen feasts became Christian festivals. And the church married the political system so that worldliness became synonymous with the church. Interestingly, the name Pergamum literally means marriage. It has the prefix per, which means through. And gamos, that root word, 
means marriage. So you can and you can hear gamos in in our words such as bigamous or polygamous, uh, and and it was through the marriage of the church to the Roman pagan world that Satan almost succeeded in destroying the church. The world was the church was plunged into the dark ages, and that's why the Lord Jesus comes with his sharp two-edged sword to expose and to judge worldliness. When we become like the world, we can expect the judgment of God. And, and make no mistake about it. I mean, today, in many places, in many churches, worldliness is still rampant. Many churches... Even entire denominations in our day have turned away from the truth and are no longer true followers of Jesus Christ. They have embraced the world's philosophy and morality. But we must separate ourselves from the world because Christ exposes and judges a worldly church. There's a second reason we should separate ourselves from the world. Christ commends and our resistance to worldly pressures. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 13, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Jesus begins by assuring the believers that he knows how difficult it is for them to live where they do, where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells. He understands that this is the place where he rules, and he understands the pressure that they are under. The question comes is, where, where is Satan's throne? Well, some identify it with the altar of Zeus that dominated Pergamum's Acropolis, Zeus was the chief god uh, in the pantheon of gods. And in uh, this uh, photo that you'll see on the screen, uh, this is one of the few altars, one of the few structures that has survived into modern times. Strangely enough, it sits in a museum in Germany. But as you can see here in this slide, the altar of Zeus is a colonnaded court in the form of what many see as a giant throne. It was 120 feet wide by 112 feet deep. The podium of the altar is nearly 18 feet high. And it has a frieze around the base, which is a, 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 a kind of a relief sculpture that extends 446 feet around the base of that altar, depicting uh, the battle of the gods and the giants. So you can see how such an impressive structure might have been designated as the as Satan's throne. Others connect Satan's throne with the worship of the god Asclepius. Asclepius was the god of healing. And people came from all over the Roman Empire seeking healing in the structure of Asclepius at his shrine. Uh, Asclepius was portrayed as a as a snake, and as a result, uh, non-venomous serpents 
would crawl freely slithered all over that temple. And people would come and they would lay on the floor hoping that one of those snakes would touch them or even crawl over them. Uh, that was a thinking and they're thinking that the God himself was touching them and they had hopes of being healed. Uh, it's interesting that the modern symbol for medicine is oftentimes referred to as the rod of Asclepius. I'm sure that the symbolism of a serpent could easily have caused the Christians to think of Satan when they thought about the temple of Asclepius. Others think that since Pergamum was the healing or was a, was actually the leading center of emperor worship in the province of Asia uh, that uh, and it posed the greatest threat to the Christians there that it was the temple of emperor worship that was the throne of Satan and uh, as you will see on your screen here uh, this is one of the uh, one of the many temples that they built to the uh, Roman emperors. See, Christians weren't executed for refusing to worship pagan gods, but they were sometimes executed for refusing to worship the emperor. And so for any of these or all of these reasons, Pergamum could be called the city where Satan's throne is. But despite the, the persecution they endured, um, the believers, most of the believers at Pergamum, continued, he says, to hold fast the name, my name, the name of Christ. And they didn't deny the faith. Uh, Christ specifically commends a man by the name of Antipas because he says he was my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you. Now, that's all we really know about uh, Antipas is what we find in this text. He was probably one of the leaders there in the church at Pergamum who had refused to worship the emperor, and he was martyred. Uh, according to a tradition, he was roasted in a brass bull during the persecution instigated by Emperor Domitian. But Jesus says, he was my witness and witness translates the, the Greek word martus, a word which eventually became transliterated into English as martyr because so many of Christ's witnesses paid the price of their life giving witness to him. And um, here was a man who paid the ultimate price for refusal to compromise with the Lord, and the Lord commends him for his refusing to give in to the pressures of the world. And Christ says to his church all over the world, you know, I know how difficult it is to live in this world. I know, I know the places, all the places where Satan has his throne. Uh, I know that he has his throne in you know, Washington, D.C., and Beijing, and Tehran. I know that he has his his throne in, in Hollywood and Las Vegas. I know he has his throne at your university, at your place of work. Satan has his places where he is working and ruling. And God says, I know the pressures that he brings upon our lives through the, the world. And he says, 
I commend you when you don't compromise. I commend you when you don't give in. I commend you when you hold fast the faith. I commend you when you are my witness. So Christ commends us when we resist worldly pressures. There's a third reason that we should separate ourselves from the world. And you see, Christ condemns our tolerance of worldly teachings. In verse 14, it says that I have, this, I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Now, now think with me just for a moment. In his previous letter to Smyrna, Jesus said that the greatest opposition to the church was from the synagogue of Satan. Uh, In other words, Satan manipulated the Jews in the synagogues so that they were constantly accusing the Christians of disloyalty to Rome and instigating persecution. But in Pergamos, the opposition takes a completely different turn. Uh, Instead of just persecuting the church, Satan invites the church to join him. It's like in Luke chapter 4 and verse 5 when when Satan tempted Jesus. And it says, "And and he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. And Satan says, this world and all of its kingdoms are mine. And if you will join me, if you'll worship me, well, I'll I'll give it to you. There won't be any difficulty. There won't be any persecution. Uh, there won't be any conflict. And and some in the church at Pergamon, they had bought in to this temptation, this idea that yeah, you can have the world, and, and you can you can worship Christ too. And Christ says, I have a few things against you. See, there are some, not all, but there are some there who have bought into this teaching that you can marry the world. Now, that's bad enough. But you see, instead of confronting them, the rest of you are tolerating this teaching. See, Christ condemns our tolerance of worldly teachings in his church. And like many churches today, the church at Pergamum had failed to practice church discipline. Specifically, Christ was concerned with with two heresies that were being tolerated at Pergamum. First, some were following the teachings of Balaam. Now, the story of Balaam is found in Numbers chapter 22 through 25. Balaam was a notorious prophet for hire. Really, he was, in essence, a sorcerer of Baal, not not a prophet of God. And Balak, the king of Moab, was fearful of the Israelites because of what they had done to the uh, Amorites. And so 
When they arrived at the, the border of Moab, Balak hired Balaam to curse Israel so that they wouldn't take his land. And Balaam tried three times to curse um, Israel, but he couldn't do it because God prevented him. And so Balaam came up with another plan. You see, if he couldn't curse them, then he would corrupt them. And he, and he got a group of Moabite women uh, to go into the cap, camp of the Israelites and to seduce them. And then they began to invite them to their feast and to their sacrifices. And before long, they had drawn a, a huge portion of the Israelites into the corruption of the world around them. And so, so Balaam taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Now that blasphemous union with Satan defiled the, the uh, Israelites and destroyed their spiritual power. Balaam's plan succeeded, but not to the extent that he thought. God intervened and he severely chastened the Israelites. He executed the leaders and he brought a plague upon the camp that killed 24,000 of the people. That drastic action halted the Israelites' slide into immorality and idolatry. There was a divorce, as it were, from the world. And listen, when Jesus says, I'm going to come and make war with you, you better take that seriously. Like the Israelites that were seduced, some of the people in Pergamum were attending the, the pagan feast with their all its debauchery, its immorality, its incest, its homosexuality, its bestiality. And then they were coming to church and they were defending their actions and encouraging other people to participate with them in it. And, and apparently the church had not taken action to confront it or correct it. And so Christ condemned this toleration of this worldly teaching. And he does so today. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14, the apostle Paul points out the absurdity of believers marrying the world. And he says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, Come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. So despite the graphic example of Israel and the plain teaching of the Apostle Paul, some in Pergamum insisted on uh, giving in to the teaching of Balaam. They believed that they could somehow attend these pagan feasts with all of their idolatry and sexual immorality and still come join the church and worship Jesus Christ. 
But that is impossible. Because remember what James 4, 4 tells us. Friendship with the world is hostility with God. If you wish to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. And by the way, the issue of whether Christians could participate in idolatrous feasts had been settled decades earlier at the Jerusalem Council. Uh, There in Acts chapter 15 and verse 29, they issued a, a mandate for believers to abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. In verse 15 of Revelation chapter 2, he says, So you also have some who in the same way hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And the phrase in the same way indicates that the teaching of the Nicolaitans brought about the same behavior, same actions as those followers of Balaam. Now, as best as we can tell, the Nicolaitans kind of focused on uh, uh, distorting the doctrine of Christian liberty. And uh, they taught that Christians could also participate in all the things of the world without any uh, issues. And um, the, so the, this was a, another or just kind of a redundant form of the same thing. Now, the majority of the believers at Pergamum didn't participate in these er- errors. They didn't follow into e- either heretical group, but they remained faithful. But they tolerated what these other people were doing. And so uh, they were guilty. They were, they were brought under uh, the same guilt as those who were uh, participating. You know, if the devil can't kill a church, he'll join it. If he can't destroy it from the outside, he'll corrupt it from the inside. And if if persecution doesn't work, then perversion will. See, Christ condemns our tolerance of any kind of worldly teaching. Uh, There's a fourth reason why we need to separate ourselves from the world. You see, Christ commands our repentance from worldly ways. In verse 16, he says, therefore repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, the only remedy for any sinful behavior is to repent. Now, to repent is to have a change of mind, and a change of attitude that results in the change of behavior. It's an about face. It's a U-turn. And, and Interestingly, the word repent seems to be missing from the lexicon of the contemporary church. We we kind of avoid that word. But this is not a word that should be shunned. It's a word that should be embraced because the call to repent is a call to come back to God. You see, the, the command of God uh, to com- to repent is is the enablement of God for us to repent. God could bring judgment upon us. We are deserving of it. But instead of bringing that a judgment, God issues a command for us to repent, to come back. He calls us to come back. Now, tolerance is, is extolled in our modern culture. But, but tolerating sinful teaching or sinful activity in the church is, is not a virtue. It's a sin. 
And it's so serious that Christ warns in verse 16 that if we fail to repent, he says, I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, did you catch the change in pronouns there? I'm coming to you and I will make war against them. That there's an underlying Hebrew idiom there and it, and it implies that the people who were actually involved or were tolerating it are just as guilty as the people who were involved in it. In other words, it's it's uh, it's an associate guilt by association. It's uh, it's an accomplice uh, in a crime, and the entire church faced the battle uh, with Christ because of this sin. Those who were practicing the heresy and those who were tolerating it. This is how seriously the Lord takes the integrity and holiness of his church. If you won't deal with it, he says, I will. The church can't tolerate evil in any form. Uh, I think about the time in uh, Corinthians when the church was proud of the fact that they were tolerating a man in their midst who was practicing incest. And and Paul writes to these people in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 6, and he says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Don't you know that a little bit of sin infects you as well? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened. What's what's Paul saying? He's saying don't tolerate sin in the church because if you tolerate it, it will infect you as well as the people involved. Uh, You don't need to try to make people comfortable who are involved in sin in the fellowship, but you need to confront them with the word of God. See, the goal of the church is not to make unbelievers comfortable. Our goal is is to tell them the truth so that they can be convicted of their sin and be saved. Now, certainly we want to do that, try to do that gently and lovingly and graciously, but we have to tell them the truth. And then once we tell them the truth about their sin, then we can tell about, tell them about God's provision for their sin through Jesus Christ, His death on the cross and His resurrection. There has to be a diagnosis before there can be a treatment. And so you see, error will will never be suppressed by compromising with it. And today's non-confrontational church is largely repeating the errors of Pergamos on a grand scale. And I believe that we're facing the judgment of God in that. I believe that the church is seeing a great decrease in this day because it has been so tolerant of the world, and the world is taking over the church. There's a final reason why God calls us to separate ourselves from the world. Christ rewards our obedience to his word. In verse 17, it says that he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Now, this is God's call to every believer and to every church. He wants us to overcome. You say, what does it mean 
to overcome? Well, it means that you hear his voice and you obey his command. See, when you hear and you obey, you overcome the deception of the devil. You overcome the bondage of sin. You overcome the temptations of the world. You overcome eternal death. You overcome in every way. And Christ rewards our obedience to his word in three ways. First, he provides all that we need in a hostile world. It says he gives us some of the hidden manna. And think about that. God fed the Israelites with manna every single day while they were wandering through the wilderness. Those were difficult days. Those were days of hardship when there was no food and no water. And what did God do? God provided every need that the people had in that hostile world in which they were living. And and then a jar of that manna was placed in the Ark of a Covenant as a memorial so that the people wouldn't forget that God provides, still provides for them even when they're not out in the wilderness. And you see, the, the, the Ark of the Covenant is the throne of God. That stands in contrast to the throne of Satan. You see, when we have a need, where do we go? We go to the throne of God. We don't go to the throne of Satan. We don't find our need and our provision in this world. The world wants us to think that it need that we need it to exist, but we don't. And and second, he he celebrates our victory when we overcome. It says he gives us a white stone. Now, in the ancient world of athletics, the victor was instead of a gold medal was given a white stone that was engraved with their name. And it indicated their, their victory in a particular event. And, and you see, uh, it also served as a, as a ticket to gain admission to the award ceremony at the end of the games and included a, a, a huge uh, celebration and feast. And so when we overcome through faith in Jesus Christ, we will feast with him in glory. Christ is going to celebrate with us our victory, and we're going to celebrate in him. It's going to be an incredible celebration. And we, and he gives us that memorial, that, rem, that remembrance that we are victorious. And finally, he gives us a new name uh, on, uh, written on that stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. You say, well, what will that new name be? Well, it just says no one knows. We don't know until we receive it. But the, the word new here doesn't mean new in the sense of uh, in contrast to uh, old in time, but it means new in quality. God is going to give us a new name that reflects our victory, that reflects our relationship with him, that reflects his love for us in a unique way. It's going to be his, his personal name for us. It's going to be our ticket into the gates of glory, that new name. Uh, my mom always used to laugh at when I was in the first grade. My, my teacher once asked me, what's your, what's your name? And I said, my name is Kenny, but my name, but my mommy calls me Honey. That was her name for me, her special name for me. 
And see, God has a special name for all of us that represents our unique relationship with him. It's the hope that we have in the future with him. The church, church at Pergamum faced the same decision, same choice that all of us faces. We can repent and receive the blessedness of, e, of eternal life and glory, uh, the glory of heaven. Or we can refuse to repent and we can face the judgment of God. How, we, how do we approach the world in which we live? We, we put our trust in God and we, we, we love him and we put our hope there in him. This is the call of Christ. He says you need to separate yourself from the world and put your trust and your hope in me. I'm the one who will provide everything that you need. I'm the one who will acknowledge your victory. We're going to have a great celebration, and we're going to have a a wonderful eternal relationship. And you know, if if you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, you could do that today. You could have a new relationship. You could have a a new name. You could have a new life because the Bible says that when we put our faith in Christ, we are born again. You could have a a new life in Jesus Christ. And I hope that you'll do that. If you'll put your trust in him, he'll give you the grace to overcome and to separate yourself from the world. Thank you.